192 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We're going to jump right in and say... Big thank yous to some new patrons. Yes. Thank you to Dee and Elsa Marie. Yeah. Thank you so much for becoming members of our patron community. And then we also have thanks for direct donations from Alan and Shirley. Thank you so much. One of them wrote a check and put it in the mail and the other used PayPal. And those are both ways that you can help to support the podcast. And we appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you all. Next up, we have an important announcement. So we just wrapped up Scarlet Summer, where we were reading The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Hester by Lori Lico Albanese, and then The Invisible Hour by Alice Hoffman. Those three books were on a bingo card, along with some related books and movies. And how many people? Six people submitted completed bingo cards. Right. And we're not including ourselves. Yes, we both did manage bingo. So technically eight people submitted bingo cards. But we did our random number generator using numbers one to six. And we organized the bingo cards by the order in which they arrived. And the winner is Sandra. Sandra. Congratulations, Sandra. Sandra with the fancy calligraphy A's. Yes, we've talked about her A's before, and we are going to share that on social media when we make the announcement of the bingo card winner. And congratulations, Sandra. You will be receiving a gift card. I don't know if they're cards. It's probably an email (laughs) with uh, some money to spend at bookshop.org. Enjoy. Let us know what you buy. (laughs) Only if you want to. Yes, no pressure. (laughs) Uh, So another announcement is we wanted to let everyone know about our fourth quarter read along. This year, we've been reading books about books. We announced it in the last episode. And we just want to remind everyone again, that the book is The Bookbinder by Pip Williams. And this book, we're going to be having a Zoom conversation on December 3rd at 7pm. If you'd like to join us, please send an email to bookcougars at gmail.com. Yep, you want to save your spot in the Zoom room. Sometimes we have more people than others and we do put a cap on it. Usually we don't have to turn anyone away. But just so you know, it'd be great if you can get your name in the, the hat sooner than later. Yeah, and there's another book by Pip Williams that we're also both planning to read. It's not the official fourth quarter read along. And you don't have to feel obligated to read it. But we know a lot of you are overachievers. And a lot of you, not a lot, but some of you have already read this book, The Dictionary of Lost Words. So the thing about Dictionary of Lost Words and the book binder is that they both are set in the same town and they have some similar characters, but they're not series. It's not the start of a series. They're standalones. Right. And if you read the book binder without reading the Dictionary of Lost Words, you'll do just fine. If you've read the Dictionary of Lost Words and you read the book binder, there'll be some familiarity to you. Yeah. One of the things that drew us to that book is that it is about women who are physically making the books at Oxford University Press, and they're not allowed to read the books. We're recording this during Banned Books Week, and we're always mindful of banned books and books that are being challenged year-round here on the Book Cougars. But we thought, not just challenging books or banning books, but not allowing whole groups of people, categories of people, to read books. It's intense. Yeah. We appreciate that about the subject matter of this 
book that we've chosen. And it seemed meta is not the right word, but it seemed deeply important when you're reading about books about books that we would read this. Yeah, totally. And it's just kind of fun to read about books being created. Yes, there's archival footage from our Oxford University Press. And we'll put a link to that below where you can see the women working usually at the sewing of the books, binding them, or pulling stacks together uh, to create the chapters that are then sewn together. And then it was usually the men who were operating the machinery. It was a very gendered workspace back in the day. So there's that historical aspect that's going to be really neat. And Pip Williams is from Australia. And we are in conversations, I'm trying to find a time to have her on for conversation about the book as well. Yeah, there's a 13 and a half hour time difference. <laughs> so that gets a little challenging, but we will let you know about that. And in the September newsletter, we had a link to a nice video where Pip talks about the bookbinder. We will put that link in episode 192's show notes as well. Yes. Look for that. Yeah. And the only other bit of news is that the National Book Awards finalists the lists were released. We were just sitting here talking a little bit about if we're going to be reading any of the fiction, any of that five. Yeah. Emily's leaning towards reading one. I'm interested in reading Chain Gang All-Stars, which I talked about when we talked about our favorite books of 2022 with Russell. And then we went on to talk about what we were looking forward to reading in 2023 back in January. Yeah, I talked about being excited about this one and still haven't gotten to it. So now I'm really jazzed up. Cool. Yeah, the one that I'm drawn to and I pre-ordered already is Blackouts. That one comes out, I think, October 17th. Not even out yet. And it's on the National Book yeah. uh, Award shortlist. So more to come on, on both of those titles. Yeah. And they also give awards for translated fi fiction, poetry. We'll put a link in the show notes for any of you who don't have overwhelming TBRs already. <laughs> if you're looking for more books to think about, it's a really great resource. Yeah, it is too. And uh, nonfiction, there's a list for nonfiction yeah. as well. Yeah. So Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I am currently reading the Purgatorio by Dante. This is the middle part of his Divine Comedy. I am going to be discussing it with some friends on a Zoom conversation in October. So I kind of had to get hustling with it. So I read the Inferno, which is the first part, which is the descent into hell. And man, it is graphic and gruesome, full of torture and awful ways that people are spending eternity in hell. It's really rough you can't get out. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I read it. I have a greater understanding of things that are now related to Dante when he comes up. But the Purgatorio is the second stage where souls are, you know, I'm currently reading it. So I don't know what exactly everybody's there for. But some of the categories I've read already are people who delayed giving it up for God, for lack of a better way of saying it repenting. So it's sometimes people who are killed before they had a chance to repent. And there, nobody is suffering in purgatory. So that was a revelation for me because I thought purgatory was where people suffered. But no one's really suffering in purgatory. They're just waiting. Um, but the things is that the souls themselves, they decide when they're ready to progress to the next stage. But say like if you were 30 years old and you didn't repent and you died at 30, you need to wait like 30 years in purgatory before you can move to the next level because you made God wait. So now God is making you wait. And purgatory is already heaven. 
that was another big surprise. So it's not paradise, but it's heaven. All of these categories, you know, kind of blow me away. But um, Dante was responsible for really expanding on things, on different concepts in the Christian Catholic faith. And I think purgatory is one of them. There's a gate between the inferno, between hell and purgatory. But then between purgatory and paradise, there's not. So more to come on that. And again, I just want to say that, you know, the Divine Comedy, it was written between the years 1308 and 1321. So a very long time ago, a really important text in Western civilization, and probably, possibly the whole world. I'm not really sure if that's an overstatement. But the Purgatorio. Wow, good for you. I don't know, having to be in purgatory for 30 years seems like it could be suffering, but maybe not. Depends on what you get to do there. <laughs> right, I guess it depends on how patient you are exactly. as a soul. <laughs> Being someone who's slightly impatient myself, that seems like a long time, but who knows? So I'm reading The Path to Kindness, Poems of Connection and Joy, edited by James Cruz. Um, I've talked about his other collection that he edited, How to Love the World, Poems of Gratitude and Hope. These, we've talked about them before. They're just a lovely size. They're nice to have on your nightstand. I turn to them often in the middle of the night or if I'm having trouble falling to sleep. And I thought if you'd indulge me, I'm going to just read one poem. We're in the fall season here in Guilford, Connecticut, and there's a lot of animal activity. I mean, the other night in our neighborhood, the owls hooted all night long, all night long. They did a bit more than hoot. (laughs) They were having a grand time. All the bunnies were hiding, let's just say that. (laughs) So one of the things that's fun about this book, too, I should say, is that there are sections to it. And They offer you little feedback about some of the poems and ways to think about them differently or maybe to do some of your own writing. But this one is by Julie Cadwallader Staub. Turning. There comes a time in every fall before the leaves begin to turn when blackbirds group and flock and gather, choosing a tree, a branch, together to click and call and chorus and clamor, announcing the season has come for travel. Then comes a time when all those birds, without a sound or backward glance, pour from every branch and limb into the air as if on a whim, but it's a dynamic, choreographed mass, a swoop, a swerve, a mystery, a dance, and now the tree stands breathless, amazed at how it was chosen, how it was changed. (laughs) I love that. Isn't that great? I mean, we just had these big groups of blackbirds come through just a couple weeks ago, and that's exactly how it feels like yeah. the trees are alive with these birds and then they just go. Yeah. And you feel them like if you're sitting in an open area, they will swoop down on you. And I have felt the wind from them and heard their feathers rustling. It's amazing. It's like hundreds of them, it seems like in yeah. this mass just. Yeah. And then they together. just disappear. Yeah. So I just loved that poem. And I, I can't recommend these collections enough. Again, it's called The Path to Kindness, Poems of Connection and Joy, edited by James Cruz. I'm always amazed that they don't seem to knock into one another. Like they're so choreographed, (laughs) you know? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are studies where they've taken birds off their migratory path, and then they just automatically come back. It's the one thing scientists haven't been able to fully flush out is the navigation you know, skill of birds mm. and how they do it. Yeah. And probably the same with butterflies. I don't know. Maybe they figured out butterflies a little more, but it's amazing. Yeah. Birds. Love yes. them. 
Well, the other book I'm reading is called The Goth House Experiment by S.J. Sindhu. This is a book that's coming out October 17th from Soho Press. So this is the first book I'm reading by Sindhu. Thanks to NetGalley and Soho Press for the advanced digital copy. Sindhu's written two prior novels, Blue Skinned Gods and Marriage of a Thousand Lies, both of which got a lot of praise from some heavy hitters. This new book... The Goth House Experiment is a collection of stories. They're really good. So Sindhu is a South Asian American in background and a queer writer. And she writes about the experiences of these two groups of people. And the first short story is about a relationship with two people, one of whom is a woman who is an academic who is having some challenges at home and decides to put her energy into TikTok. And she's somebody who doesn't do social media and things kind of get out of hand. It's quite interesting. It's like a middle, early middle age type story. Um, and then people changing within a relationship, really intense. Uh, there's a story about a man who has been having an affair and leaves his wife and is dealing now with the girlfriend he's been having this affair with for two years and what happens with them. And it's during the Boston Marathon bombing. And then another one is, is set during the pandemic. And I think it's the first pandemic story I've read. I, really? I You know, I don't think mm. I've read a pandemic mm. story yet either. And it's about a, a couple living in Chicago, I believe, who it's the height of the pandemic and they're living in a city. So no one is going out. And when you do, you're definitely masked up. And it's about people going a bit bonkers and becoming obsessed with different things. Yeah. So there are a couple more in the collection that I'm reading, but I, I kind of have to read one and then go to sleep. Like I can't, I, I could sit up and read the book every night, but it's my bedtime book right now. So I'd have to force myself not to start another story, but really enjoying this so much. And we'll probably check out her prior novels because I enjoy her writing so much. There, It's such a ease and effortlessness to them, uh, but they're very relatable in what the characters are experiencing or the time period that they're living in. So again, that's The Goth House Experiment by S.J. Sindhu, coming out October 17th. Chris, what did you just read? All right, so I finished Adversity for Sale, You Gotta Believe, by J. Jeezy Jenkins. And this I listened to as an audio advanced reader copy from Libro FM. Um, thank you for that. And HarperCollins Leadership. This book is categorized as a memoir slash self-help. Obviously, it's part of their leadership series. You know, Jeezy's a rap singer who started out as a thief as a young person and became a very powerful drug dealer and really was very successful at what he was doing in Georgia is where his drug empire was. It's kind of curious, I, and I mentioned this in the last episode, to think about leadership from the criminal aspect of it. He talks about some business principles, eliminating structural blocks so the money will flow. This one point he goes with a friend to his other neighborhood, I think it's like in northern Atlanta maybe, and every gang has their corner. Where Jeezy was, that wasn't the case. Like you had all of the streets to do your business and then you had your trap. And he was seeing that block, like blocking the money flow. He's always somebody who wanted to be a CEO and be involved in the bigger picture. 
and he saw that. I don't know how much everybody knows about street drug culture, but it's a very violent culture and people are being killed left and right. And when his first coworker friend dies, it's really shocking to him. And by the end, when he's really almost ready to leave that world behind and make a full effort with the music, you know, he made this transition that took several years. The feds are knocking on his door, literally. And he said, you know, by the time the feds come, it's too late. But he somehow managed to evade prosecution. And it's fascinating to me because it, it is huge gangs. He said that after he left the business, when he would travel, he would have 50 to 100 guys with him wow. to avoid being assassinated mm -hmm. by rivals. I would last 10 minutes on the streets. It's a very different perspective from anything I had ever read about. And he, you know, had millions of dollars that he's dealing with on a daily basis. And he put a lot of his money into his music early on to make it happen. And I was so surprised to learn about rap music from that time period. So this is like the early 2000s, that making it in the strip clubs was such an important aspect of making it into that music genre, which I wasn't aware of that either. So very eye-opening and just a story of a guy who chose this path and didn't always feel comfortable with it, I suppose, and had big anxiety over it when you're constantly having to watch your guard and maybe even being betrayed by family members. It's quite dicey. Some funny things he said, though, I was so surprised to hear him say that trap music and trap music is that genre of rap where they're rapping about the streets and drug trade. He said that trap as a genre is corny as hell. Hmm. That's a direct quote from him. Because one of the things is the man does not lack in confidence. He talks about how authentic he is and how a lot of other rappers are not. Hmm. That trap thing is a genre and people rapping about stuff that they haven't lived is a big issue within that community. I listened to it on audio. He narrates it. It was very entertaining. I learned a lot. I listened to his music, and I really like his music. It's not something I'll go to just randomly to listen to, but I listened to several albums while I've been driving around, and his songs are very different. Like They don't all sound the same. Some are almost poppy the beat sticks in your head and i was so surprised that was a, a good listening experience and i would recommend it if you want to learn more about rap or if you're already a fan of his i think a lot of fans uh, have enjoyed this book from what i've seen on goodreads so again that's adversity for sale you gotta believe by jay jeezy jenkins cool. it's available now right on i finished wellness by nathan hill I went on vacation last week and I did something very different, which is I brought this tome instead of bringing usually about a, a bag of 10 books. I brought this one. I did bring my Kindle as backup, which has about 250 books. <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry, you know, if in case this one didn't work out after I opened it. Nathan Hill wrote a book called The Knicks that I talked about relentlessly in 2018. When it came out, I gave it to everybody. I just thought it was a brilliant debut novel, and it got a lot of attention and praise. This is his sophomore novel. It just came out in early October. Wellness, the name, comes from a psychological clinic that one of the characters works at where they do tests using placebo, 
medication. It's a behavioral science clinic, and some people get the placebo, and some people get a real drug. But they're testing how people react to situations. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. So what is wellness about? Wellness is about a couple. It's a love story between Elizabeth and Jack. And you meet them originally, they both have relocated to Chicago. So I thought about you, Chris, when I was reading it. And they're living in apartments across an alley from each other. And they're both kind of spying on each other and kind of falling in love with each other, but they've never met. But their windows have met, you know. Jack comes from Kansas. He has a very Midwestern background. His father's job was to light prairie fires. He was very skilled at that. It's a very difficult thing to do. Prairies need to be burned in order to be healthy, but it's dangerous for obvious reasons with winds and things like that. And then Elizabeth Harkins from Litchfield, Connecticut, which is very close to where we live. And she comes from a long line of wealthy businessmen who are not very upstanding characters. They both are in Chicago doing different things. Jack is concentrating on his photography. It takes place in the early 90s when you start reading the book. And Elizabeth is going to DePaul University, and she has like five majors. She's very smart and interested in learning. She ends up becoming this behavioral scientist. I want to now talk about the story with without trying to have any spoilers, which is difficult. But what I will talk about is that Nathan Hill writes very complex books. They're very deep and complicated, and he tries to do a lot with them. (laughs) It was a hard book to read on vacation. There were moments where I was like, this isn't a good idea to be reading about a marriage that's complicated with financial struggles and emotional struggles. And it's not really what I would think of as a classic vacation read for me, Mm -hmm. particularly as the gentleman caller chose to bring a handful of very short books and was just whizzing through them and throwing them across the couch. And I was like, page 297, (laughs) you know, did I say it's over 600 pages? And it also has an intense bibliography at the back. Mm. And this is a work of fiction. So there are some sections where what happens is Jack and Elizabeth end up getting married They have a child, and there's a whole section called chapter titled The Unraveling, where Elizabeth is struggling as a new mother, and he cites, literally cites, study after study after study, because she's a scientist by nature, right, as a character. So she's reading all of these scientific journal articles and such, you know, to try to figure out how not to screw up her kid. Like, oh my God, does anybody need any help with that? (laughs) There are chapters like that. There's a whole section where he starts to go into Facebook and analytics and what Facebook does, how it reads our behavior online. I mean, those chapters were very intense. I don't really want to spoil the story. I will say that it unfolds in a very interesting way. I'm going to say that. Okay. Also, one of the beautiful things that he does is chapters have these beautiful black and white photographs because the character Jack's character is a photographer. So that's really cool. So the themes of the book are marriage, generational wealth, undigested grief. That's always a good one. Uplifting on vacation. (laughs) Sex, parenthood, psychology, social media, so many things. 
I really, really liked this book. I was really glad when I finished it. (laughs) It's very intense. I'm anxiously awaiting. I see friends reading it. You know, like I've seen them on Goodreads that they're reading it or in social media. So I cannot wait to talk to somebody about this. I haven't had the chance yet. Again, it's called Wellness by Nathan Hill. If you're reading it, let me know. I'm happy to have read that one vicariously through you, Emily. (laughs) That's how I feel about Dante. (laughs) Yes. That's the best thing about having a reading buddy, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Because you do. You get to double your pleasure without the pain. exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I did finish Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieter. This is a nonfiction book. I did it as a buddy read with Britta, who is a booktuber at The Second Shelf. You know, this one had been on my mind since I first heard about it, because what she's writing about is what do you do with brilliant art that was created by people who have done really heinous things? How do you reconcile that? How do you deal with it, right, as a fan, as a consumer? This is a collection of essays. It's marketed as criticism, and memoir, and I think it's more memoir than anything else. The fact that it doesn't have an index should have been my first clue. The book starts really pretty strong. You know, it starts with her own experience, talking about the films of Roman Polanski and then Woody Allen. She was a film critic for the first part of her career, so there are a lot of films discussed. So instead of keeping the focus necessarily on the heinous things that usually men or the monsters have done, She was trying to keep the focus on the fans Hmm. of this and how do you reconcile things and how do you deal with it? And she has this great image at one point when she's talking about Michael Jackson of a stain that when you hear somebody that somebody has done something heinous, their artwork is stained, whether it's music or painting or writing, and that stain can spread. So I do like that visual but the book itself doesn't really pan out very well i feel like the first part of it is very interesting in terms of bringing up a lot of different ways of thinking about how do you consume art by people who've done bad things she does talk about women and when she talks about women it is often about abandoning children committing death by suicide or in the case of joni mitchell and britta and i both had issue with this Joni Mitchell, as a young woman, gave up a child for adoption, and then she had great career ambitions, and she's considered a monster for that. That seemed pretty anti-feminist to me, and I don't recall her bringing up abortion, so I can't imagine what she'd have to say about that. But I just thought that was really harsh. Somebody who does heinous things to people, violent acts to people that ruins people's lives, and then you give up a child for adoption that to me doesn't make anyone a monster in the least. So lots of troubling things like that about this book. I've heard from other people that it has made them really mad. Quite a few people have really loved this book or enjoyed it, I should say, but it doesn't hang tight. There's not a through line to it. It's very inconsistent. It's dismissive of fans quite often, I feel. And that's sad. Because at one point she says, you know, there's no authority to tell you where you can put in this person did that and this is what they created. And so this is the answer on whether or not you consume it. There's nothing like that. Nothing's going to tell you that you're a good person. 
And I'm thinking like, that's so dismissive. Like no one's picking up this book to say, can I be a good person if I watch the films of Roman Polanski? People are honestly looking for, I think, a philosophical, sociological conversation about this issue. Because at, at the one point at a very late essay, she actually makes a statement. She's talking about consuming or not consuming. And she says, it's essentially meaningless as an ethical gesture to not consume art by monsters, basically. And I'm thinking like, okay, where's the backup data on that? Because that from everything I understand, money talks. And so as consumers, our choices do matter. By just saying that, by just saying, eh, you know, you love what you love, and it doesn't really matter. I think that's just a big cop out. And I think it misses the point of structurally what's wrong with our society. Because early on, she talks about patriarchy, but then she does not go and explore the systemic issue that we have with violence against women and different groups of people. And I think she misses the mark on that. She could have really explored that. And did she explore capitalism at all? No, mm. she just says that. And mm -hmm. it's just like, for one, where did that come from? Talking about it in that way, and then not backing it up with any type of statistics or studies. So I think in some ways, the book is not as, as strong as it could be in and of itself. And I think overall, it's not the book that I've read about. It's not the book either that I wanted to read. Yeah, I do want to read a book that explores this with a little bit more intellectual chops, <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it. Do you know what I mean? Like, really digging into these issues. I would assume she's inserting herself in her own experiences and things like that. And maybe that's not what you you wanted to read more of a straight nonfiction. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. That's That's the confusing thing about this book. It could be another case where it is marketed incorrectly. Right. And people have pulled out certain things that they want to discuss and make it sound like that's the whole book. It reads more like journal entries almost or straight forward memoir mm -hmm. of somebody trying to figure something out. And so then it has those inherent contradictions that happen when we're journaling and writing about things and trying to figure things out. But I just really take issue with some of the dismissive remarks that she makes about people and fans in general mm -hmm. and how she lets some people off the hook and other people not so much. Yeah, maybe you know? she's trying to make herself feel better about what she consumes. Well, this all started from a an essay that she wrote that was popular in the Paris Review. It was a 2017 article. And I have a feeling, and this is something you and I have talked about before, that sometimes when there's a really good article or a really popular article, and then somebody gets a book deal about that subject, maybe it was just better off as an article. Right. They said everything they already needed to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I just do think this book needed a few more years to ferment for her. Because she also talks about how maybe she's a monster because she was an alcoholic, but she doesn't go into detail mm. about it. And she also calls some people assholes versus monsters, but we don't, you know, like, where's the, is that a spectrum? I don't know. So I just don't feel like the book was fully baked. If you are interested in checking it out, I'd recommend getting it from the library. And the first few chapters will give you lots of things to think about. So Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieter. 
I finished Naked on Sex Work and Other Burlesques by Fancy Feast. This is a book of essays. At the end of this episode, we have a wonderful conversation with Fancy. And the book drops today, October 10th, the day this episode airs. Fancy is a burlesque performer. She's also a social worker by day. She's a sex educator, a phone sex operator. She's had lots of different jobs and the different essays take you through different aspects of her life. Also over the pandemic, I thought of that as you were saying, that story you read was your first pandemic story. Mm -hmm. This is also a pandemic book. Imagine being a burlesque performer in very small venues sometimes, you know, that whole industry was really compromised by the pandemic. So she takes us through that experience of, you know, her life becoming very small and her spending a lot of time in her bed <laughs> trying to make a living from there. But excellent writing. Oh my gracious, is she a good writer? I was so taken by this book. This is her first book. Chris, I did want to tell you that Dante appears <laughs> in this book. She got asked to go to an event. I think it's in Nebraska, someplace like that, somewhere way out in the Midwest. She's with a, a bunch of motorcyclists and kind of at an RV camp. And she says, sharing a porta potty with several hundred bikers is one of Dante's lesser known circles of hell. <laughs> <laughs> my God. She's not wrong because there's a circle of hell where people are swimming around in poop. Basically. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> one of the things that she talks about that's really interesting is nudity as a form of storytelling. I didn't really understand exactly what burlesque is versus historically vaudeville or being a, just a stripper. And she really explains that in this book and talks about that she has an act and she takes a lot of time to put these acts together to tell a story. Fancy's also fat and she talks about what it means to be in a fat body doing this kind of work. Wonderful book of essays, highly recommend. It also has a very provocative cover with two beautiful breasts with pasties on them. She also talks about how she makes her costumes. So when you're reading it, you know, you find yourself turning back to the front cover when she's talking about making pasties for large areolas. Yes. Yeah. And her, um, there's a documentary about Fancy Feast and she talks about making the pasties and doing them on commission now for other women. Yeah. 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 With a, with beautiful rhinestones. So we will put links in the show notes for that documentary that Chris referred to. And then also for ways that you can find fancy feast. Cool. Yeah. I think one of the things she said is that burlesque is taking your clothes off artfully mm -hmm. <laughs> with, you know, storytelling where stripping is taking your clothes off in a different way. And with burlesque, you just don't get paid enough. Or right. you, you get paid less in burlesque, so therefore it is artsy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I finished one of my first spooky reads of the season, September House by Carissa Orlando. This is a new release. It's a haunted house story. It's a little bit more gory than I prefer necessarily, but it kind of had its purpose. The ending gets a little out of control, like, haunted house stories tend to get she has full control of the story though i don't want you to feel like she loses control of the story it's more like 
the ending, right? That gets very hairy, for lack of a better word. But it's about a couple who buy their dream home, this old Victorian home, and they're fixing it up. You know, they, they've never had a house of their own, really. They struggled. They had one daughter. And they get this beautiful home. And they find out that every September, things get really weird. Ghosts start happening. Blood starts coming down the wall, progressively getting worse as this month goes along. The ghosts can actually touch you and do things. There's one ghost that bites her and other people. But she does have a maid <laughs> who was a victim of a violent crime in the house who takes really good care of her and is always making tea. I mean, a ghost maid? A ghost maid. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's unbelievable, of course, but it was believable. I went along with it. I felt I was in really good hands with Carissa as a storyteller. So if you don't mind a little bit of gore, not even so. Yeah, there is gore. More blood, blood. dripping down walls. I know. But like she doesn't go into <laughs> great detail about it. Let's just put it that that. I really had a great time reading it. It was a fast read, very enjoyable story. Spooky season. Totally. And I love a good haunted house story. I've been reading more haunted house stories than vampire stuff the last couple of years, I've noticed. But again, that was September House by Carissa Orlando. It's available now. And then I read a couple of kids books. So I took my dog to the vet just for a checkup. And while I was in the waiting room, I was reading some of the kids books that they have there you know they have crayons and coloring books and kids books and one of them was when a pet dies by fred rogers of mr rogers neighborhood so i really liked that book they had several others about when a pet dies and what i liked about this one is that it just has his typical no-nonsense compassionate way of speaking to children about real things and I just really enjoyed that. So I would recommend it as a good book. It's part of the first experiences series. One thing he does is he does leave religion and ideas of afterlife out of it. And he says that is something to be discussed with family and loved ones about whatever your faith slash traditions are. And then the other book I read, dun, 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 <laughs> I read Stairway to Doom by Robert Quackenbush. We saw a wonderful exhibit about Mr. Quackenbush at the New York Society Library last episode. We did a recap on that. Stairway to Doom is a Miss Mallard mystery. And I think this book is perfect for the book cougars because it has a vampire-like character. I'll actually post a picture on social media. Miss Mallard goes to a castle in Scotland with all of her other relatives because great aunt somebody died and was leaving the castle to them. And the premise is they can spend the night in the castle and whoever makes it through the night gets to inherit the castle. Oh my God. And then they can decide what they do with it. <laughs> and are they out to get each other? Miss Mallard, well, you'll have to read it yourself to oh find goodness. out. There's not anything going on between, it's mainly like cousins and stuff. It is kind of like a little bit of an Agatha Christie story in some ways. And Dracula. <laughs> it's mm. a little bit of both, you know. But they're such delightful stories. And I have vague memories of her, Miss Mallard, as a kid. Or maybe it was just from working in the bookstore. You know, I, I don't really know. But the little diagram about where everybody was staying in the castle. There's a library scene. 
as well. So also makes it a good book, Cougar's book. I think this one's going home with me tonight. Yeah. Stairway to Doom, Robert Quackenbush. And he has a lot of books out there. He recently passed away in, in recent years. So check out his books. They'd be great for the little kids in your life or yourself when you need a little bit of lightness. Well, we had a big Biblio adventure. We had a joint jaunt together in Boston. This was the final hurrah bidding adieu to Scarlet Summer. We've had so much fun. We've gone to Concord. We've gone to Lenox. Boston was Salem. Oh, Salem. Salem right. Yeah. So many. So this was our fourth big biblio adventure and final. Yeah. Final one for looking at Hawthorne related stuff. Our first stop was Brook Farm, which is just outside of Boston, the city of Boston proper. Yeah, West Roxbury, I believe is the town. So yeah, Brook Farm is that communal, utopic society that Hawthorne attempted to live in for a while. And the the main building, I guess, that they had isn't standing anymore. There is a building that does stand that was built afterwards that was part of a Lutheran biblical society slash orphanage right and it it's not being utilized right now and we were told that the roof is leaking and things like that so we just took a peek at it and then they do have an informational kiosk out front where you can learn more and see some other pictures and one of the things we learned is that margaret fuller used to spend time there she wasn't officially part of the community but she had a cottage where she would spend time the foundation still exists, so we decided to take a little hike. <laughs> we took a walk in the woods. <laughs> to find it. It was a sunny day, slightly on the cool side. Mm-hmm. So that means that reptiles like to go out and lay in sunny areas. <laughs> so we were walking. I was taking the lead. We really weren't sure where we were going. And all of a sudden, I stepped in a snake slithered over my foot and I screamed and Chris was like oh I've never heard you scream before we've known each other a while I wasn't afraid it was just one of those it shocked me screams startling oh (laughs) absolutely yes yes so yeah that was funny we ended up backtracking and taking another little trail that looked less traveled than the one we were on but we did find the foundation of what had been Margaret Fuller's little cottage and it's just really just the foundation and some garbage that's in there like an old door and things yeah. like that. So it wasn't overly exciting. I don't know that we would recommend that people go, but it was fun for us to think about it and know where it was. Yeah, I mean that's such a cool thing and I was really happy to see Margaret Fuller listed on that information kiosk that you mentioned because I feel like more and more people are becoming interested in her, learning about her and becoming more interested in her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then we went into Boston proper. We had a few stops we wanted to make. After finding parking, which took us a little while, we went and um, trekked, I think, right away over to Chipotle, right? Yes. We went to the historic area in Boston. That's where we were. Everything is really walkable there. Our first stop was the Old Corner Bookstore, which now is housing a Chipotle, which I thought, you know, that's kind of smart of them. I mean, this place has been a retail establishment since it was first built hundreds of years ago. And so now you have all these tourists taking pictures of it with Chipotle on it. Right. You know, smart. (laughs) (laughs) So we did go inside. It was a lovely day. So we got our food to go. 
and we sat out in the park, which ironically is a park dedicated to the victims of the Irish famine. Yeah. So there we were eating our Chipotle, which seemed a little... Yeah, it seemed odd. It seemed odd, yeah. It did, yeah. I mean, that whole area is very capitalist and money-filled in nature. There's a lot of stores around it, so that's kind of odd. But it's a beautiful sculpture. Yeah, Yeah. and it is such a nice little park that's right there. I'm sure the ancestors are happy people are having food today. Right, exactly. um, that, That are eating it there. But there was also this really cool little free library, like a kiosk type thing that looked like it was almost like a maybe a triangle or a squarish type thing that had doors that flapped open. Right. And it was locked, unfortunately, when we were there. It had just kind of finished raining. So who knows if they open it up later. But somebody had stuffed a couple German books in there. Yeah. So that was neat to see. And then after that, we walked over to a cemetery up the street We were searching for a very specific tombstone for what we have been told was the inspiration for Hester in the Scarlet Letter. Yeah, so Elizabeth Payne's headstone. She died prior to Hawthorne living in Boston. Her headstone has the stylized A on it that was part of the family crest, I believe. And Hawthorne, when he worked at the Boston Custom House, that was his path, you know, walking that way from home on Pinckney Street, and then he lived someplace else originally, I think. So that is a speculation. I don't know if there's any hardcore evidence of him maybe saying in his journal that he saw that headstone or something, but it was really cool to find that and to say hello. It's a very ancient cemetery for the United States anyway. Yeah, it's really impressive. And there were a lot of people walking around. I mean, that's one thing about Boston when you're doing some historical sightseeing, you see a lot of people with brochures in their hands and on the trail, the Freedom Trail, looking at different historical sites. Yeah, and a lot of tours happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can almost listen in a little bit to what they're saying wherever they happen to be. Right. We walked past the old state house where I guess the the first public school in the United States was located. Yes. The Latin school. Yeah. And there are sculptures there and everything. We're not going to go into all the details. Go and do it yourself. Oh, my God. Boston <laughs> is just... And I mean, yeah. if you're into history, literary history, any kind of history, yeah. I mean, Boston is such a rich town because, you know, that center area was never destroyed by fire or rampant commercialization I know probably a lot of important buildings have been torn down over the years, but it still has its old colonial feel to it. Right. And then we walked to the Boston Athenaeum, where we had called ahead to try to schedule a tour for the day. They have one tour at three o'clock in the afternoon, and unfortunately, it was full and waitlisted. But they said, you know, come, show up, people cancel. Sometimes the docents are happy to throw in a couple extra people. And we were lucky enough to be able to go on the tour, which lasted a full hour and 20 minutes. It did, yeah. The docent said, I have a habit of going over. She said, so if you need to leave right at four, please don't feel bad. Just leave wherever we are. Right. So (laughs) she focused a lot on the art Mm -hmm. that was hanging. Really wonderful to learn about the background of some of those paintings. Yeah. And then we did go up to different floors. There's five floors The fifth floor is a silent floor for members only. 
no speaking on yeah, that floor. There's no speaking. And they don't even take the tour up there anymore. They used to. I had read somebody's blog post that you used to be able to stand outside, but nobody could say anything. But I'm sure 10 people clomping around that right. does create noise. So that was off limits to the tour. Right. We should say this is a member. You have to be a member to be able to explore the full extent of this facility. If you come in and you pay for a day pass, I think you can explore the first floor. I think the first floor is like general admission, and then you can pay $40 for a day pass. And okay. I think you have access to everything okay. for that day. Okay. The reason we went is because Nathaniel Hawthorne he wasn't a member, but he went there and he read and researched. He was a guest of somebody at the time. I mean, obviously, we went because it's the Boston Athenaeum. Well, also in the in Alice Hoffman's The Invisible Hour, the character goes there to check out books and spend time. So it was mentioned in that novel as well. Yeah. I had this image that she also lived just in the neighborhood. So that part was fun. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we kind of lucked out. Um, the tour was wonderful with the docent that we had. And then we were chatting with an employee who found out that we're just huge book lovers. And I'm a librarian. <laughs> we were nerding out everyone. Let's yeah, be clear. <laughs> we were totally nerding out. So she said, you know what, I'll let you guys go up to the fifth floor. And she went up with us, we get in an elevator, she takes us up. And I expected her to be like looking at her watch, like, okay, yeah, look, now you're done, get back on the elevator. But she let us out of the elevator and then said, have a good time and stepped mm -hmm. back on the elevator and went away. <laughs> right. Chris and I looked at each other like, really? I know, we were like little kids <laughs> in the biggest candy store ever. So we walked around and we had our cushy gym shoes on, fortunately. And there were some members there reading. I don't even think they allow laptops up there. It's just pure reading. It was, it was quiet. so quiet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we started pulling things off the stacks. It was the fiction area. So that was really fun. So what they have up on the fifth floor is very tall ceiling. But around the perimeter, there is a narrow glass walkway with books up there. So you can take these really narrow, steep steps to get up to that little half floor and look around and pull books and things. And then there are books, obviously, on the main floor of that fifth level as well. Yeah. And then they had a little outside balcony area, too, off of that fifth floor that was delightful with comfy chairs and a beautiful view of the city. And it was a beautiful day. So yeah. that helped as well. Yeah. So then, um, you know, we went to the other floors too. we did we did pull some Hawthorne off the shelf, we couldn't help but look for some Edith Wharton. And what was interesting with her books was just how many of them were replacement copies, because they had been borrowed. So yeah, often they were just yeah. worn or lost or second copies of a popular book. We looked at some other authors too. And then um, they have a coat check there that's free and lockers that are free. And we got our coats and our purses and we were walking out and we started looking into this other room that was for members only, peering in the glass window, you know, like little Dickensian children. <laughs> a staff member a came st over and he was like, would you like to go in there? We would. We're like, yes, really? we would. Yeah, and he's so. like, well, you have to. Well, he'd already checked our bags and everything. Yeah. He let us take our bags in. And that had new fiction. So it was really fun. We found some friends in there. Hank P. Ryan's newest novel and Laura Sims novel. Yeah, that was really fun. That was fun. So, And that was another quiet area that the tour didn't take us into. 
but it was pointed out to us. So it was fun to get in there and see like what books they were bringing in. Mm-hmm. And there were some fun books about books. Yes. As well. And then great artwork and wonderful statuary and everything. It was really generous of him to do that. And we were in there a long time and we were taking pictures and just yeah. having a grand time. He did check our bags on the way yes, out, which yeah. was probably a good move. Yeah. Well, I, it was just so nice that they, they let us have such access. Yeah. It was very, I felt like it was a really special experience. Yeah, it was lovely. We highly, highly recommend. You could easily spend a full day there enjoying mm-hmm looking at all the art and spending some time reading and looking Mm -hmm. through the stacks. And then we headed over to Pinckney Street, which is several blocks away. And this street is where four different literary people of the 19th century lived at different times. So it was Nathaniel Hawthorne, the Thoreau family, Elizabeth Peabody had her kindergarten on that street. And then Louisa May Alcott also lived on that street with her family it was lovely because we stopped in front of each place and we, of course, ooed and odd and we took a picture. <laughs> and then the only plaque on the street that we saw anyway was on Louisa May Alcott's home. While we were standing there ooing and eyeing, a couple people came up and we pointed out Louisa May Alcott. And I'm not sure where they were from. They sounded like they were Spanish speakers, but they just were like, oh my God, the, it, it was two sisters and their husbands. And they were just pointing and taking pictures. And they're like, oh, we love little women. And our mother loves little women. And one of their daughters was standing there who was a teenager. She's like, hmm, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But she was very interested in having her picture taken by a beautiful fence. So she she was in it for the beauty of the street, which was a spectacularly beautiful street. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Boston, you can just walk around the city in that historic district it it takes your breath away yeah yeah and then on the way back we went through it's called the the common right boston Boston Common. common yeah and we got to see a sculpture which we had seen from a distance one of the last times we were there called the embrace yeah and that's a statue that celebrates coretta scott king and dr martin luther king's love and their leadership And when we were there before, I think it was the dedication, actually. So the place was mobbed, you know. So um, we said we'd go look the next time, and we did. And it was just lovely. And, you know, it's kind of a controversial statue or monument, I should say, because it's just showing their arms hugging each other. And I know some people have said, what about their faces? You know, you don't really know who they are. It's kind of generic in some ways. And other people have said, no, it's focusing on the love and the importance of hugging and touch especially during the pandemic that we just went through when so many people didn't have access to touch. Right. I think it's beautiful. But I think art is an interpretation. There was a woman there with her family and she was like, Oh, people, you're always going to make someone unhappy. (laughs) So good to think about that. Art is what it is. And it's someone's impression of something. It is. But when it comes to public art, you do have to look at who's getting the dollars Mm -hmm. to make the art and why. Yeah, that is an important question to ask. And I have no idea about the background of that statue. I yeah. did. It is beautiful. Yeah. And it was really relaxing to sit with it. Yeah. And it was fun to watch other people interact with it. I mean, you can touch it. It's outdoor art. There's some kids touching it and talking about it. So that was a really nice end to our day. It was. Yeah. Because it's one of those you could walk under and, mm-hmm. and everything. So that's always fascinating for 
Yeah, it's kids. quite large. Yeah. It's very big. Yes, we did a video, a slideshow video with some photos of the day. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to see some pictures to go along with what we've been talking about. Yeah, and shout out to my buddy, Chris. She did a great job on that. She did voiceover (laughs) and really put together a nice example of what our day was. So you can journey with us. Thank you for doing that. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, we completely, I I mean, I didn't even think about taking video that day. I was so in tourist mode. It was fun. I mean, we did take a lot of pictures, but yeah, no video. Too bad we don't have video of the snake. Yeah. <laughs> there was one house we were in front of. We were taking a picture, and a woman was coming home with her kid. And she was just like, <sighs> Yeah. She's like, I live here. And we're like, Oh, sorry. You know? Yeah. You can <laughs> tell people who live on that street are probably over the tourists. Yes. It was fun. <laughs> but lucky her. She gets to live there. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, what other Biblio adventures have you had? I went to Cape Cod and I had quite a few Biblio adventures. I'll go through them very quickly. Most of them were bookstores. I stopped at Heritage Books in Wellfleet, Mass. This is a beautiful used bookstore in a very old antique building. The last time I was there was during the pandemic. So we didn't stay very long and we were masked this time. It felt different. There were more people there. And I discovered there's a basement that I didn't even know existed. So that was fun. And it's the it's very narrow and twisty to get down to the basement. And they had this cool paddle handle to use as a guardrail to get down the stairs, which was fun. And I came out with a book that I've had in my hands several times and just never bought this time. It really spoke to me. It's called The Book of Salt by Monique Truong. And this is a novel and it is based loosely on real characters. It's historical fiction about a Vietnamese cook who works for Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas in Paris in the 1930s. So cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that. The other place we went to was Provincetown. The Provincetown Book Festival was going on over the weekend. Sadly, the timing didn't work for us because we had to check out the day of the festival and it's the wrong direction. So, But we did go ahead of time and we went to the Provincetown Bookshop, which is one of the co-hosts. They had a really lovely table with all the books for the festival, for the authors that were going to be at the festival. And it's a really small bookstore with cool cube-shaped shelving, which I'd never seen. Usually shelves are just straight long shelves, laid out really nicely. And the bookseller there was really chatty in a good way. And they were just about to close. We didn't get much time, but bright and airy. And then just down the street and across the street is Tim's Used Books, where you have to go down this brick walkway and you have to walk down a path and it's very welcoming and you see, you know, Tim's used books and you go down and down and then it's a beautiful used bookstore, very well curated. The gentleman caller turned to the gentleman sitting there who was reading and said, are you Tim? And he said, indeed I am. (laughs) So that's a stop. If you're there, I would definitely make. And then we also walked Just a few blocks outside of the main street of town is the Provincetown Public Library, which is where all of the festival events were to take place up on the top floor. And on the top floor is a replica of a ship, a vessel called the Rose Dorothea. And this was a fishing schooner that in 1907 won this 42 mile race and brought this very beautiful silver cup. I think it's called the Lipton Cup 
back to Provincetown. And they have that in the first floor of the library. The schooner was actually built, this replica was built in the library. It's unbelievable. And as you climb the stairs, they have pictures of the people who are building it. I have pictures. I'll post it on social media. I haven't posted those yet. I was sending them to Chris as we were (laughs) discovering, and she was like, oh, my God. And it also has some of the most beautiful views of the ocean. I would love to go and just work in that library one day. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we ran into a woman who was working, and she said, yeah, I've been traveling with friends, and I just ditched them today. I just (laughs) wanted to sit here and stare out at the windows. And then came across a lot of little free libraries on our gallivants as well. One was a beautiful mermaid themed little free library with mermaid knobs to get the doors open. Very sweet. And then on the way out of town, we went to Chatham, Mass, and it was a very rainy day. Jim wanted to go fishing. I didn't want to sit on the beach in the rain and wanted to read. So I went to the Eldridge Library, which is their public library. Beautiful. So gorgeous. Beautiful woodwork, stained glass windows. They had this gorgeous display of a dress that was made out of paper, made out of pages of books. Unbelievable. And then the basement was Friends of the Library book sale, just like constant book sale. There was someone there working who was arranging all the books. She was making them so neat and beautiful. I almost felt like I couldn't, you know, pull them (laughs) off and look at them. But I did. I was like, oh, she can rearrange them. I don't know. I didn't get anything there. But I forgot to mention that at the Provincetown Library, I did grab a copy of a book off a free shelf, which is called Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination, which is a memoir by Elizabeth McCracken. She's someone I know more as a short story writer, but this is a memoir about a year in her life, I believe, where she lost a child very deep into a pregnancy and then had a successful pregnancy. I've always wanted to read it. It's a very small little memoir. Oh, I wanted to thank a listener, Anne, who listened to episode 191 and heard that I was going to the Cape and said, if you get a chance and you're driving through Sandwich Mass go to Titcomb's bookshop. And she said it's one of her favorites and they have new and used and great sidelines. And thank you, Anne, for the recommendation. Sadly, I mean, not sadly, we went to visit some of Jim's relatives, but they were not near Sandwich Mass on our way out of town. It was the other part of the Cape. But I think what I'd like to do is go back with Chris. Maybe we can do that someday. I would love that. All of those libraries sound fabulous in the bookstores. I think that needs to happen. Yes, indeed. So it was a really good time. I mean, we had the right amount of bad weather. So you can go do some inside stuff. And then nice weather where we did some biking and walking and things like that. So yes, Cape Cod. The Biblio adventure I went on was being on Sean the Book Maniac's booktube channel. We were filming something for one of his series. And he said, Hey, would you want to do a Friday reads kind of thing. And so we did a little segment sharing bookmarks. And I have two bookmarks from my childhood. One is copyrights for 1972 and 1976. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can see them. And funny, when I was telling Emily about this, she's like, Oh, my God, she's like, they were probably from Antioch. Yeah, Antioch Publishing or Antioch Bookplate, it kind of had two different names throughout its history really had most of those kind of sidelines back in the 70s. If you went to any bookstore anywhere in the country, and you looked at the back of the bookmarks, 
they would have said Antioch Bookplate. Yeah, so I took a closer look, and sure enough, they say Antioch Bookplate on the back. And I just have such a visceral memory of standing in front of those spinner racks. I know they had floor models that were tall, and then they had the countertop models that would maybe have like one or two rows of those bookmarks. And just you just see them and you think 1970s. So yeah, they had the little yarn tassels little on tassels, them. Tassels, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was fun. Yeah, very cool. Upcoming jaunts. I'm heading to Maine. I've only been back for a week, but I have kind of someone who's a second son to me and he's getting married. So my kids are flying into Maine and I'm going to meet them and I'm hoping to get to some bookstores. I've already looked them up. But I'm not exactly sure how much time I'm going to have. So, And then I'm also hoping to watch Lessons in Chemistry. I think they're releasing the first two episodes. This is on Apple TV on October 13th. And this is based on the novel of the same name by Bonnie Garmus. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I didn't read the book, but I am signed up for a preview of the first episode. So totally check that out. I don't have anything on the books right now other than a new job. Got my first library job. Woo, woo. I'm looking forward to that. So I haven't put a lot on my calendar because of that. But I do think you and I need to go and have a good old-fashioned author event somewhere. I agree. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get together and make a plan. How about upcoming reads? I have two. One of them I will be reading in January. So this is an official invitation to anybody who would like to buddy read Emily Wilson's new translation of the Iliad with me. Beautiful cover. Yeah, I had to get my hands on this right away. I read her translation of the Odyssey and really enjoyed it. I read the Iliad a long time ago in college. I have a vague memory of some things, but I really look forward to reading this. So the second week of January is my plan to start reading it if you're interested shoot us an email, bookcougars at gmail.com. And it's funny, when I went to pick this up, I was out in the area where there's a lot of stores and stuff. I was running errands, and I went into the local Barnes & Noble. And I was looking at stuff, and um, I saw an employee, and I was like, hey, because I was looking in the classics section or something. I'm not really sure. I said, do you all have the new translation of the Iliad by Emily Wilson? And he said, yeah. He's like, it would be in the poetry section. You know where Dante is. And I was like, Dante. And, Here he is again. And he looked at me and I was like, it's just kind of funny that you say that because I'm reading the Divine Comedy for the first time. So then I went over to the poetry section and there was the Divine Comedy like halfway pulled off the shelf. One mm. of the one of the editions was. I was like, okay. Dante's totally messing with me mm-hmm. here. Careful, and, you don't want to end up in purgatory. Or maybe you do. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Can you take books to purgatory? I mean, if you've got 30 years yeah, to sit around and wait. That's true. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that sounds like a novel somebody needs to write. Yeah. The Librarian of Purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other book I have is Because I Could Not Stop for Death, an Emily Dickinson mystery. This is by Amanda Flower. And that's a, I don't know if that's her real name or a pen name. I know she's written some other series. She has written under different names for different series. And this one is about a maid. Her her name is Willa Noble. In January 1855, she comes to work at the Dickinson home in Amherst. And she and Emily really hit it off. And then Willa's brother is killed. 
in what is called an accident, but there's questions about that. So Emily Dickinson, as an investigator, I'm on board. How fun. Is that a recent publication? It's copyright 2022. It's a Berkeley crime crime book. And I love this. So this, I requested it from the library. And I've noticed this from other libraries that I've requested interlibrary loan. They have these little sticky notes that they put in. And it says, to help others rate this book, rate it one to five with five being the best. And then one or two word comment. And the person who read this before me said it was excellently written. And she gave it a five. She, he, they. Bodes well. Yeah. I have Afterlife by Julia Alvarez. And this is a buddy read I'm doing with Aunt Ellen. She's already read it for a book club of hers. And she sent it to me. And this is about Antonia Vega, who's a, a writer. And she's also an academic who's recently retired. And sadly, her husband died unexpectedly. And her sister has kind of gone off the rails. And she arrives home one day and there's an undocumented immigrant a teenager who also happens to be pregnant. So I can see that must change the course of her life. I'm looking forward to reading it. It's this tiny little beautiful novel that feels good in your hands. And Julia Alvarez, I know her more from one other novel she's written called How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents. But when I opened this, I was shocked to see that she's very prolific, also in nonfiction, poetry, and books for children. Nice. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to learning more about her. And then I have a new nonfiction that just came out in September called Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America by Dahlia Lithwick. She's a very revered journalist. She's on CNN a lot. I started to just move through this, and she has different chapters focusing on different public figures that we would recognize today. So I'm looking forward to reading that. And what else? Oh, Out Now. Oh, the Out Now section. Yes. Yes. Books we have mentioned before they were published that are now available. Let Us Descend by Jasmine Ward just came out this week. How to Say Babylon by Sophia Sinclair is a memoir. And then Nothing is Missing, a memoir of Living Boldly by Nicole Walters. All Out Now. Coming up, we have a wonderful conversation with Fancy Feast, author of Naked. Enjoy. Happy Happy reading. Fancy Feast was drawn to burlesque style performance as a young child and in high school demanded a role as a Kit Kat girl in a production of Cabaret. More on that later. She was the subject of a documentary by Leon Chase, a film we recommend because A, it's good, but it will also give you a great visual landscape for her new book, Naked, on sex, work, and other burlesques. It's coming out October 10th from Algonquin Books. Welcome, Fancy Feast. Thank you so much for having me, Cougars. (laughs) That's a good place to start. We love your name. We took the name Book Cougars because we thought the name Cougar was a play on words. You know, we're the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. We also kind of wanted to take the name back from some of the ways that people look at it in society. Can you tell listeners how you chose your name, Fancy Feast? Absolutely. So the name Fancy Feast was given to me. It wasn't something that I can take credit for. Um, one of my one of my friends was coming up with her own stage name, and she had a list of different potential names. And she called me because 
she thought Fancy Feast was a great name, but she's like, this is not a name for a skinny girl and offered it to me. And uh, it's turned out to be kind of prescient because each of the words like fancy and feast are both these sort of celebrations of glamour, of abundance, of this like heightened, beautiful sumptuousness. And then when you put them together, it's like the cat food that you would buy at a bodega. So I think that tension and that sort of relationship to glamour and abjection is something that I play with a lot in my work. So it was it was the perfect name for me. We also would like you to just explain what burlesque is. Yeah. So burlesque is a style of performance that nowadays is most commonly ascribed to artistic striptease that happens in bars, in theaters, sort of generally speaking outside of a strip club setting, although not not always. It's very connected with circus, vaudeville, and sideshow traditions. Historically, burlesque referred pretty widely to a, a variety of low art forms, including skits, including body songs, so that back in the day, there wasn't such a thing as a strip club. There was a burlesque house. And so you would see comedians and actors and singers, and then also striptease performance all in the same place. And nowadays, that that name just refers to the striptease performance. Yeah, you talk in your book, you, you mentioned that it's part old world, part new world. And I, I really like that. And you made me think about one of my favorite novels is Tipping the Velvet by Sarah mm-hmm. Waters. And one of her characters is named Kitty, who is a vaudeville performer. And I was like, oh, Kitty, Fancy Feast, like clicked in my brain. So thank you for that. <laughs> totally. I think there's a rich tradition of the feminine and the feline, how, they are, how they're connected. I love that you're taking the name and making a play on it. It's a perfect name. So why don't you give listeners kind of your shelf talker or elevator pitch about what this essay collection encompasses? So my book, Naked, I try to tell people that I want to become the Anthony Bourdain of taking my tits out. <laughs> so it's a book of essays that are about the sort of cultural underground that I'm in that relate to my long history of work in burlesque, in other forms of nightlife, in other parts of the sex industry. And the sort of thesis, and this is like not what I would say in an elevator pitch, because I, I don't know if people in elevators want to hear this kind of shit, that it really is about how our culture talks about sex and bodies and subjectivity through the lens of somebody who is working in a place where there's a ton of projection happening in order for in order for my like job role to be successful. So it's like I learn a lot about the people who are projecting onto me based on all of the different roles that I've held in my work life. Yeah, the opening essay you talk about that the reflection that when you're on stage Maybe people in the audience's assumption is they're there to just watch you, but you're also watching them. And I just thought that was so interesting when I read it. And it reminded me a little bit, if I could just go on a little tangent here, of when I first moved to Guilford, it was in 2015, and my son came to visit, and he was in his early 20s. He wanted to go to Pepe's Pizza, which is you know New Haven Pizza, which we had never had the experience. And we went to a comedy show. And we were just there to watch it. And there were several comedians. And one of them, he wasn't the headliner, but he was kind of bombing. And he was telling very crass jokes, which didn't bother me at all. 
But then as he was bombing, he turned to me and my son and he was like, what's up with you two? Like, is this what you do as mother and son? You go to comedy shows? And it shocked me. And part of why it shocked me, I think, was like, I mean, it felt inappropriate and some other things and it was embarrassing (laughs) because I'm not someone up on stage, you know. But it also was like this weird, like the wall was broken, you know. And you talk in your essays about insult comedians and how sometimes that happens. It also, when I read that part of what you were writing, it's like, well, but you're in this relationship with the audience, right? Can you talk about that a little? Because you're telling stories on stage. Absolutely. I think it sounds like that comedian was really flailing, (laughs) first of all, which (laughs) hopefully is not what I do on stage. I, I think there's a difference between reaching out to your audience with a sort of outstretched hand, metaphorically speaking, versus reaching out to strike. And that's part of why I have such a difficult time with with performance that is purely combative or that is defensive. It doesn't feel generous. When burlesque is performed, it's intended to be a conversation between the people on stage and the people in the audience. Or, you know, oftentimes there isn't a stage. So it's about the performer moving around in the same room, being in the same environment as the audience. I think that's really beautiful. And there's a lot of transformative potential in that kind of relationship. When the pandemic was in a different stage, like in the earlier phases of it, all of the clubs were closed. And so there was digital performance and burlesque performers were doing their acts at home. And we got to to feel what it was like for the first time to perform for an audience that we couldn't see. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't have that kind of relationship of immediate feedback and conversation, you know, nonverbal conversation happening. And it was very different. It was extremely eerie. So burlesque cannot exist without the audience, I think, being being present and giving and taking in equal measure, I think. Yeah. So one of the questions we have is about your storytelling. And we were curious, you know, how long does it take you to put together? Do you call them a skit or a scene? An act? An act. I'm sorry. Yeah, an act. How long does it take you? Like you mentioned earlier, when we were talking that you might have an idea, and boom, you can put it on that night. And others seemed a little bit more complex. And we're just curious, you know, what is your process and, and how long does it take from that initial idea to your, your performing it on stage? It really depends for me. Um, some acts, as I said, yes, if I have an idea and I already have costume pieces that are going to work for it, or it's something that doesn't involve a ton of fabrication, then, you know, give me 24 hours and I can go, at least with with a sort of initial draft. I think most things really do get worked out on stage. Like you do a lot of A-B testing with different crowds, mm-hmm. seeing what lands and what doesn't. With some acts, I've had them in the hopper like 10 years or <laughs> something like that. I've had I've had ideas that haven't been executed yet that I'm just sitting on. And then when I'm creating acts, if I'm working with a costumer, I'm at their mercy in terms of what their timeline is. And I often don't choreograph until my costume is completed because the costume is going to dictate how things come off and in what order and what my movement is going to feel like. Like if I'm wearing a corset, I'm not going to be able to bend over, for example. So it's all of that is going to be sort of guided by my limitations with what I'm wearing. So that may take, you know, six months or something like that longer, depending from planning and design fittings whatever execution. And then it's however long I practice and feel comfortable with my choreography and with my, yeah, with the themes and then have people 
watch me and give me some notes and stuff like that, like have my trusted friends before putting it on stage. So it really does, it really does depend, which I guess is an unfortunate answer. (laughs) Well, I mean, I imagine there's different levels of complexity to the act you're trying to perform as well. Absolutely. And some of my acts are very complex, but the complexity is done in the audio editing because I went to film school. I'm such a nerd for this kind of audio and video engineering stuff. So I often will create audio that is that is bespoke. And sometimes like if the complexity is there and not in the costume, then I can do things a little faster, actually. <laughs> yeah. Very <laughs> yeah, cool. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your experience with Cabaret. You know, your book, it's one of the few books in a long time that has made me both laugh and cry. So your sense of self, it seems like you've always had such a great sense of self. And the story about you claiming a role as a Kit Kat girl in Cabaret, I would just love for you to share that with our listeners. Oh, sure. I, uh, one of the most sort of, one of my first sanctuaries, I guess, was was high school theater. And my 10th grade musical was Cabaret. And I had initially been cast as Fräulein Schneider, who has a great role in the play, but who is a crone character and is not sexy. And I was, I've always been fat. And so I was taking that very personally because I think there's this automatic maternalizing or, or assuming that fat people are matronly or not sexy. And that was like too edgy for high school theater, right? So I petitioned to have a demotion in my casting so that rather than having this juicy role with a solo song, I could be a chorus girl and wear lingerie and do a chair dance. And that was, that was granted. (laughs) And the process of claiming that for myself and of uh, putting the choreography into my body of feeling what it was like to have stockings and gloves and doing a chair dance and wearing high heels. It was this first taste of something really addictive and really dangerous <laughs> for me. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, I would like my, the rest of my life to be about this. But I assumed that because cabaret is a, is a play that is about the Weimar era, that that was something that was gone from our, from our world, that, that that was like, I would have to just hope that I would keep getting cast as a kid, that girl for the rest of my life. But then when I saw burlesque in New York for the first time, it was this, this amazing light bulb moment of like, Oh, this exists. This is what it is now. Yeah. Let's, I, I want to talk about living in a fat body and sex there's a lot of great sex in this book. I mean, really well written, really interesting. And and I learned a lot reading it. And you are a sex educator. I mean, I don't know if currently you are, but you have definitely done that as part of the way you've made a living. And Chris and I talked about this before we mic'd up with you, like so much of sex and being comfortable with a partner starts with how you feel about yourself and your own body right? And there's an essay you have called, I think it's Yes, No, Maybe. Is that what it's called? Where you you talk about that you can make a list of your yeses and your nos and your maybes of what you're interested and willing to do with a sex partner. How much of your experience as being a sex educator and creating that list, maybe even for yourself or talking about it with other people has to do with how you come in with your own body into a relationship? An interesting and complex question. I think my my relationship with my body is is first and foremost mine. It's been something that I that has changed over time and has 
developed as I've had sexual relationships with other people and also as I've aged and as my body has changed. Um, and to me nowadays, it doesn't, it's not something that I, that I tend to think about that much unless I'm being intentional, um, about making time and space for that beyond, beyond experiencing pleasure or beyond asking my body to do something it doesn't usually do. Um, so I think, like, I really do not rely on other people's assessments of my body to generate my self-image, which is paradoxically something that I have developed after stripping in front of strangers for, you know, 13 years. That it's like, there's such a cacophony of other people's assessments, and they're so incoherent that there is no way to to sort of pick out what the truth is. Uh, so by the time I'm having sex with other people, there's a lot that already feels like worked out. Like, I just experienced my body as sensation, as, as presence, as pleasure. Um, and so really having like an embodied experience of my own sexuality rather than an observational one where I'm sort of like, you know, above myself looking down at things that, that really doesn't, that doesn't happen. Um, and if it does, I'm like, I'm, I'm dissociating. That's not, that's like (laughs) not typical. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that answers the question though. Does that, does that get at it or is there another piece? I think so. I mean, I think, it's, I think our relationships with our bodies are so complicated. I mean, and I'm obviously projecting here a little <laughs> bit. But, you know, when as I was reading your essays, I thought, you know, it brought up the, it brought up so many things. But one of them was the idea of nature versus nurture. You know, you seem so confident about your body and advocating for yourself in high school to get that role, which, you know, high school can be a time for people where they're so fraught particularly about their bodies and how they fit in with their friends or, or just the, the gaze, the puritanical gaze of our country, you know? And so I was wondering with all of your experiences as a sex educator, if you think some of, you know, is some of the, the way that people don't understand sex or know how to be comfortable with themselves has to do with society at large? Or do you feel like you came to this yourself? Or do you think your family helped you come to this position? They did not help. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bless them. No, um, no, I, so my radicalization happened way before I was, I was sexually active. Um, Middle school was the worst time in my life as it often is for most people. And, um, and that was also when my body was changing, you know, related to puberty and I was gaining a lot of weight and it was just like, there was a lot going on. Um, and I, I was seeing how my, how I started being really differently perceived and treated both like hypersexualized and then also like rendered invisible. And I started experiencing street harassment and things like that. And I, I mean, I intellectualized it because that, that, that is a family tradition. And I started reading a lot about media literacy and reading a lot about body image and thinking about who profits off of my self-hatred, realizing that all of this was was intentional to profit maximize in, in industries that benefit from self-hatred and that that market based off of it. I was like, oh, I can I can step out of this. And so I became, I mean, they called it culture jamming back then, but really what it meant is that I was like defacing a lot of billboards. I was shoplifting. I mean, whatever. I had I had my little moment. Um, so that so that by the time I I entered high school, I mean, not that all of the stuff was fully worked out because it wasn't, but that I had this sense of like media literacy around 
narratives that we get about about bodies and body size. It was also around that time that I like Dr. Atkins was the thing. Everyone was on the Atkins diet and I was put on the Atkins diet as well by my family. And that completely like warped my sense of of hunger and appetite and also my sense of my body and space. Like it all just became so wildly disconnected. And I had to I had to get help. I mean, it was it was something that like working with a nutritionist who was like health at any size focused, I think is how she how she aligned herself, really helped me decouple a lot of this stuff. So a lot of a lot of my personal work had happened way before sex really came on the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sex at any size as well. Um, I would love to talk about sex toys a little bit. Um, right. You talk about, you know, working in a, in a sex toy shop and San Francisco, I used to visit a lot and there was a great sex toy shop. But a lot of people have this conception that, well, you even mentioned it in your book, and I don't know if it was you or a coworker who says to a man who's threatened by a dildo, well, if you think that's going to replace you in the relationship, you might want to look at what you're bringing to the relationship, which I think is a great line. But I think people have such ideas about sex toys. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about your experience working with them, educating people about them. One of the scenes that I cried about when I was reading your book is when you were working with women who'd been through cancer treatment and surgeries and were in recovery from that. Yeah, I was I was amazed at how much sex toys became a lightning rod for other aspects of our culture that they were I think I used the word talismanic and that's how I continue to think about them that they were inert and they are abstracted and that there's something about the form of that that really invites a lot of fear, a lot of shame, a lot of desire and wishes so that it felt like we were handling these mystical objects when we would be working with our customers, that there was something so powerful about the experience of having that, having that conversation, having that transaction, placing sex toys in our customers' hands so they could manipulate it and see how it worked and ask questions about it, that even just receiving that, touching a sex toy for the first time, having it turn on in their hands, there were all of these moments of discovery, of, of panic, of self-disclosure. I mean, it, there was just so much that that came out. And I haven't had a lot of other retail experience. I guess I worked at like a hippie jewelry store before then. And I didn't experience that same thing. Although I imagine there are other industries where that kind of relationship happens. But it felt like this entry point into people's psyches. And things got very intimate and things got very intense. And there were a lot of interactions that didn't feel like they were situated in the relationship between a customer and a retail associate. That was part of what drew me to the job, that it was something that I could bring myself to. I could have like a stake in, it did align with my politics to some extent. I mean, it's still capitalism, but you know, it was like amazing and powerful and transformative thing. And then you're like, and I'm gift wrapping and I'm a lot of stocking the condoms and, you know, and so, so there'd be a lot of, a lot of adjusting and readjusting. Um, and when, when I was working with people who were experiencing shame and projecting that shame or who are dealing with that shame by being violent or by being angry or harassing or things like that, that was also something that required a lot of collaboration with my coworkers and a lot of, a lot of judgment calls around how to keep us all as safe as possible in those spaces. And that was, it was just a lot. It like would leave me with a lot to chew on at the end of the workday. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just want to say to listeners too that a sex toy shop 
can be a lovely space. And, and there's a difference between that and like, you know, an adult bookstore from the old days that was kind of dark and a little scary and skeevy, possibly, you know, so I just want to put that out there for listeners. Totally. I think I think there's a real range and and the sex shop that I worked at, um, although it was in, you know, it's in the Lower East Side. So it's as it was in an old tenement building and everything that comes along with that. But it was people really thought we sold sunglasses or sold skincare products and things like that. The lighting was cute. We had glass windows. It wasn't it wasn't something that was intended to be scary or shameful. It was intended to be welcoming. That said, I do love the I love a, sh- a shamey, <laughs> scary, <laughs> seedy <laughs> space. I think yeah. they really they serve a purpose, and and I'm so glad that they exist. Um, I like to visit those places too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I lived in Nevada for a while, and they had some classic places like that there, for sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and one more thing, um, patriarchy, um, and, <laughs> and <laughs> we're done. That's yeah, it. <laughs> But I love how you mentioned, you know, that uh, for a while you were, as a younger person, you were an issues girl, as you called yourself, as, um, and you thought about makeup as a tool of the patriarchy. And as a performer, and then as a woman, how do you think about makeup as a woman and as a performer? Mm. Well, nowadays, if you want me to wear makeup, you have to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> So if there's if there's a check at the end of my evening, I'm happy to put on a full face. Okay. Um, I've never liked it. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel good on on my face. It you know causes me to break out. My mom never taught me how to do makeup, so it's not a way that I have historically expressed myself. It's not something that I'm ever going to tell somebody else what their relationship to it has to be. Obviously, but for me, I think of it as a tool of performance and and. Any any performer like in theater is going to need to wear some sort of makeup in order to allow their face and facial expressions to be legible based on how intense stage light is and how far away an audience is. So I try to think about it in those terms. It is also a way to communicate gender performance and to exaggerate facial features that align with femininity. And um, and that's the tool that can be used in a variety of different ways. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily simply align with dominant stories about women and beauty. I can do all sorts of makeup. I can also have glamorous makeup while I'm doing something truly horrifying on stage. And the makeup is sort of the Trojan horse that allows people to to let me in, to sort of drop their guard. So I can get away with a lot when that's happening. Mm-hmm. In terms of the patriarchal nature of it, I think that comes more with like an expectation that in a cishet sort of relationship that like, if you're dating, whatever, the woman has to put makeup on for the date. It's like, that shit is expensive. So if there's a pay gap and then I'm spending my money on, you know, $80 foundation, that just feels fundamentally unpleasant and is something that I would really like to have a, a makeup patron. <laughs> you know? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tax write-off nowadays. But, uh. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, I mean, your writing is fantastic. Have you always been a writer or have you come to it more recently? I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, I I loved Jo March. She was like one of my early literary heroes. I was caught up in the romanticism of what it might be to write. And that, of course, was something that I used to fantasize about and never to actually like sit down and work on something. 
I did write little skits in my synagogue. I was, I was tasked with writing all the sort of like holiday plays. And so that was truly, I think that was my first burlesque experience was like writing a Passover play that had musical numbers and drag and stuff like that. <laughs> we just didn't call it drag back then. <laughs> um, and, but playwriting and, and theater tradition was always the, the way that I was going. So um, I went to a summer playwriting workshop for teens in my, in my high school years. And then in college, I shifted into screenwriting. So this is certainly my first foray into book writing. And then, and memoir was always just something I would kind of save for my, for my live journal or for my diaries. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, wonderful. We absolutely love your book and mm. want to uh, get it out there to as many folks as possible. So thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.